0: Welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source and code in the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are the bodies buried? How can we dig them up and have some? that's just going to keep going? Okay. Uh, Today on this podcast, we have a few panelists. We have Justin Dorfman.
1: Hello, everyone. Pia.
2: Hello.
0: Eric.
1: Hey, everybody.
0: I don't know Gunner's last name, but Gunner. Hello. And me, that's actually all the panelists. And we have, just because we love making them feel totally outnumbered, one guest, Nathan Schneider. Hi. It's great to have you on here. So Nathan is a professor at CU Boulder, University of Colorado Boulder, as opposed to other places called Boulder in the world. I don't know where they are. Can you tell us a bit about what you do there?
3: Yeah, yeah. So glad to be here. I'm the Professor of Media Studies at CU Boulder, and I run a, a new little outfit called the Media Enterprise Design Lab, where you know, we work on projects related to democratic ownership and governance for media companies, online platforms, the internet, uh, social movements, just like trying to slip democracy into places where it's absent wherever we can. That's
0: awesome. That's really, really cool. And also probably very needed. Uh, you also run a thing called
3: social.coop, co-op, one of them? Co-op, yeah. Not not the chicken kind, the, the, <laughs> the kind that involves shared ownership and governance. So social.coop is uh, one, one of many such little projects where in this case, we run a Mastodon instance, you know, Mastodon being like the kind of open source, non-Twitter, Twitter-like thing that uh, is part of the Fediverse. So, you know, that kind of, broader range of open social media platforms, and we run it as a cooperative. That's why the, the top-level domain is .coop. And so the people who use the, the tool are also kind of co-owners and co-running it. And we do our, our money stuff on Open Collective as well, which has been great.
0: That's really cool. So you're one of these rare people who isn't in a CS department, but knows a lot about what's going on. You're running Zoom right now
3: on a Linux machine. Can you tell us how you got to where you are? Well, I guess it's that stuff. I mean, I the, the computer stuff for me started when I was in a band in high school. I had a band with my next-door neighbor, and he was really good at computers. He ended up becoming a, you know, he's an engineer at a big company that you've heard of. And he, at the time, was a tinker. And when we were building, like, websites for our band, you know, he taught me how to like copy other people's websites on and then put them on our GeoCities or angel fire websites. And then I I did actually a year as a computer science major and it turned out to be in college. It turned out to be um, something I was really, really bad at. I realized that I was working really, really hard just to get by. Everybody else was barely working because they already knew all of it. And they were just going through it to, you know, they learned it all when they were 13 and they were (laughs) just going through it to, to get the degree. And so I, promptly switched to religion and have been studying culture ever since and worked as a reporter for a long time and kind of a half reporter, half activist. And, 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 but all along I've kind of kept habits that I started in that year, which was involved, like just trying to use as many open tools as I can to just enjoy the, the, you know, the life of the commons. And, you know, I've, since then I've been writing in Emacs all the time, which is in the terminal, which even Emacs people think is stupid, right? I've come to love using tools that are built by communities and interacting with those communities. I'm not a developer. I don't submit, you know, bug patches, but I can submit bug reports and I just love the interaction and the conversation and the and the experience of being part of these communities. If I'm gonna be on computers all day, you know, I'd I'd much rather it, you know, be with others rather than kind of interacting constantly with these kind of robotic corporations somewhere else. I love that. And I think you would be a developer, actually. I mean that's
0: a that's a loose term, so I wouldn't I wouldn't shy away from that, especially if you use Emacs. I'm a Vim guy, so Emacs is just foreign as 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 hell. One of the questions I have is that you you like the phrase, the tyranny of openness. Can you describe what you mean by the tyranny of openness when you use it? Because that seems to be the opposite of what you just said of liking to be in communities and talking to people and helping out.
3: Yeah, yeah. So it's, I guess, another annoying habit I have is that uh, when I lo- love something, I like to criticize it. And so this, this phrase of the tyranny of openness comes, it's a reference to a uh, famous essay from the early 70s in the kind of feminist community of the bay area the tyranny of structurelessness right which is a, a critique of these kind of open horizontal groups that these consciousness raising circles that were popular among feminists in in the world that the author joe freeman inhabited and these were you know they they would talk about having no leaders and being horizontal and being structureless and she raises this critique that when you Claim to be structureless, you are often importing in a tyranny, and and there's going to be a tyranny lurking in the background. And this is an essay that has kind of recurred in the Silicon Valley context in tech. It's it's had a long afterlife, and the tyranny of openness, which is a you know a, a phrase I use in in some recent writing, where I use feminist frames in particular to look at debates going on in open source, is you know is a way of just posing a challenge to open source about ways in which the the movement has kind of neglected certain tyrannies that are arising within it whether it's you know this acceptance of benevolent dictators for life in many projects whether it's being kind of parasitic on the economics of the corporations surrounding projects rather than letting projects having projects run their own economics or ethics you know the, this there's was kind of a growing call in the ongoing tech lash among software developers and, and others to you know to be more intentional about how our tools are being used, and you know all these things kind of amount to this ongoing debate and you know perhaps crisis in, in open source. And you know I was trying to find a frame that helps us understand where this all is coming from, and you know I found some of those same feminist traditions that Joe Freeman was working through uh, to be useful in understanding what's going on here.
1: I read your article, and that's why I reached out right away. I had to have you on the show. Now, here's what I've been thinking about. The Linux kernel, Python up until recently, Ruby, Curl. They're all run by BDFLs. They're installed on billions of devices. Tell me, why is that working? And in the future, how should projects at that scale work?
3: Well, it's a great question. And and to me, there's this... Kind of open research question, which is like, why is this so normal, right? And you know, I don't think I have a definitive answer, but I do have part of an answer. And this is here's another little catchphrase I've been working on in in my in my research, which is implicit feudalism. And this is an argument around the way in which the tools we use implicitly lure us into like super feudalistic structures. And I've done this kind of historical dive that, you know, goes back to, you know, BBS systems and these moments where people are describing what it's like to be running your BBS in your house. And they would think of the community as like a group of house guests that they are literally hosting. And from there, all the ways in which the tools that we use for online collaboration and community have these implicit biases in them that steer us toward very feudalistic practices. And, and when I compare, for instance, like something like the structure of Linux to like my mother's garden club, which has like a constitution and elections and, you know, a board and, you know, very clear responsibilities. And, you know, it's kind of like, uh, we have a lot of catching up to do to that garden club. And maybe there are things we wouldn't want about that, but still there's some sophistication there that a lot of our open source projects lack you Know consider a case like Git, if I can be allowed to get a little geeky here. Like Git is really interesting because it's a it creates power vacuums. It doesn't really decide what the canonical, you know, branch is. It has a this kind of beautiful intrinsic decentralization. But as a result of that, it relies on either the mailing list that it's being run on, whoever controls the mailing list, and mailing lists are very futile. You know, you're an admin or you're not, you know, and admins can silence people and you know, have incredible despotic control over voice, right? Or a, you know, a GitHub repo, which again replicates these these kind of admin permissions logics. You know, Git platforms don't have the tools to run, you know, something like My Mother's Garden Club. You could ad hoc it, you know, like Wikipedia or, you know, or as you mentioned, Python is now doing, but it requires extra work. And so it's made me wonder if we had, tools that had some cool governance stuff built in would so many of our projects be structured around this kind of logic i'm not sure about the answer but that that's a kind of question i'm asking
2: i can't help but like draw parallels with you know direct democracy and representative democracy and you know this idea that if everyone you know this this utopia that we can all have agency and participate and, and vote and have like equal access at the end is also forming this kind of leaderless soup where the loudest voices are always winning the debate and there is like no structure at all that organizes power because at the end of the day what we need are our structures in place that help us manage the power that comes with creativity that comes with production that comes with a community that is fascinating like what would you you know in, in your Wildest dreams, like what would a structure like that look like? What tools should we be building? Like, what do they look like?
3: Um, Okay, so to me, again, an open question that I'm really interested in the answer to. And uh, and uh, maybe there isn't an answer, but I think of two models. You know, one would be something like Creative Commons, right, which is a really successful kind of toolkit for licensing. Right. But you have very few options. Right. You have, uh, you know, a handful of very well developed options. And okay, so you're starting a new project, you want to license your stuff, you pick one of those, you know, very few vetted options, and you know, the communities just kind of crystallize around certain models that really seem to work. Another approach would be to like open the floodgates. And so I've been working with this this group of scholars, we call ourselves a meta governance project, scholars, practitioners, researchers, you know, blockchain, you know, like Basement dwellers, all these things. And what we're exploring with that would be a much more. And by the way, L- Lawrence Lessig, who served Creative Commons, is kind of involved in that as well, is trying to imagine what it would be like for people to actually build their own governance tools and to create a kind of modular environment where it becomes like, you know, the WordPress plugin you know, library, right, where you're just drawing in things that other people have built for other purposes, and you can hack them together into a, a governance toolkit that makes sense for your group. And and then we see a kind of acceleration and in innovation and creativity and playfulness as different groups try out different stuff. You know, I'm not sure which, you know, in some ways it can be. I find um, people who like governance and rules and and processes and structures have a kind of distorted view of the world because they don't recognize the way in which most people don't care about those things at all. And that those things actually have a violence to them and, you know, destroy culture and destroy community and all this, all this stuff. So I have to enter this conversation with like a recognition that my, my biases as someone who likes this stuff are like immense. And I have to be very wary of them and, and just try things out and, you know, and see what the world does see what I can learn from, you know, regular people who are less kind of distorted in their, in their vision. I don't can know. I, I mean, which one would, what, what would be useful for you? You know, what would you, what would you want to play with governance or would you want it to get it over with?
1: I can answer that with a follow-on okay. question, which is, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you talk about governance as modular assembly. I mean, I've always, I continue to dream of governance design patterns where you think about outcomes or equity or agency that you seek to animate based on community values or norms. And, you know, when you say pull this governance module and that governance module in, that just sounds like Franken governance. I'm curious if the notion of governance design patterns is something that's part of your meta governance conversation.
3: Yeah. And and it's been one, you know, we've been, we've tried a bunch of different attempts to create typologies, right? So do we start at the mechanism level or do you start at the like general level? Do you start with Aristotle's, you know, typologies of oligarchy and democracy and so forth? You know, there are all these different levels at which you might address the question. You know, one difference, for instance, you know, I think in terms of a pattern that could be useful or, or that's been useful for me is governance that is optimized for decision as opposed to action. You know, I've seen that difference play out in some of the blockchain protocols. For instance, some really focus on like getting people into doing something. Some people or some of them really fixate on like, how do we make this decision? And I think there's even a class dimension there. You know, I, I, you know, I had a mentor. An activist mentor is always like, you know, you know, the difference between, you know, a middle class activist and a working class activist because the middle class activist is going to be obsessed with decisions because that's what they're trained to do. They're trained to, you know, organize decisions on behalf of the owning class, right? Whereas working class people, you know, are taught from childhood to do stuff, be competent, you know, I, I get the job done. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting dynamics there. You know, one, for instance, attempt that I made is to collect some of these patterns is a little um, directory called Democratic Mediums. That was kind of a forerunner to some of this work. And it was an attempt actually came out of like being at a, this kind of blockchain ish conference and seeing this longing that so many people had for like the one true voting system, you know, like, Oh, once we get this voting system, all of our governance problems will go away because this is the correct one. Right. And it just, as I heard this, I kept thinking of like all the stuff, you know i thought back to like any governance process i've been involved in any like political news i've ever read and thinking about things like friendship you know and eloquence and you know all this, the the pieces of those processes that are so essential and you know one more thing too is you know this goes back to that tyranny of structurelessness one thing you see if you've ever you know played around with some of these you know distributed governance protocols and you know, these blockchain projects You know, what you find is they've got their tool and it's got the beautiful voting system in it, right? But then you realize that most of the time they're not on the tool. They're on Telegram and it's exhausting. And often there are people whose work is totally undervalued who are like making old fashioned newsletters, trying to keep track of like what everybody's talking about. You know, they're reinventing in the background and not admitting it, all the stuff that like traditional offline governance has done. And then they're pretending that the, the technology is running the show, right? And it's often very gendered too. So anyway.
1: It's like XKCD 927, the standards situation. There are 14 competing standards. Oh my God, we got to make a standard that is going to cover everything situation. There's 15 competing standards. So that's <laughs> what you got me thinking.
3: Yeah, I appreciate it's how engineers think. You know, they want the, the engineered solution, but you know, politics is very good at resisting engineering. A lot
0: of what you're saying is very fascinating to me, particularly the split between classes with action and decision-making. That's something um, which I've been noticing a lot, but I haven't had that framework to couch things. So as soon as you said that, all sorts of explosions happened in my mind. One of the things I'm really curious about is what's the split in coders like on, on a normal GitHub project between people who would uh, could be classified as doers versus people who would be classified as decision-makers, and how does that work directly into governance? Because there are differences in where people learn how to code. And I'm not saying that you know someone who grows up an x amount of income is going to always be a doer or whatever i mean these are, these are lenses upon which you look at things, but I, I wonder just because I'm personally very curious, have you ever looked into that like inside a project, who actually does the things and who who tries to say who who does the things, like who makes decisions et cetera
3: i I haven't, but it does remind me of that you know the experience I described earlier, going to computer science school right, and realizing that everybody is you know learned it themselves and 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 that reminds me of you know whenever i think of that whenever i see a coding school or somebody's ideology you know some somebody professing this this logic that oh if everybody just learned how to code if we took all the you know homeless people and taught them how to code that would solve homelessness right it it's just a reminder that there is this kind of you know proletarianized code you know where you know people get taught to learn a certain thing and then there is the kind of culture of hacker communities and practice, and that is different from just like learning how to write in a certain language. And you know, I, I wonder if if things would fall along those lines, where you know people who are learning in a very schooled environment are missing certain cultural lessons that are you know that come through class, that come through other dimensions, that end up reinforcing certain kinds of hierarchies. I I don't know. It's it's uh, it's something I haven't studied, but. Yeah, I'd be curious about you know, more about the kinds of experiences you all have had in those kinds of line drawing.
0: On, on the video, you can't see it, oh, listeners, but Gunnar just took his glasses off and on. And it reminded me, in particular, of Zizek's favorite movie, which is what the, the Body Snatchers or something, where there's these glasses you can put on. And once you see them, you see the world as it really is. And everything is ideology, basically. So, like, every advertisement is like, you're not perfect, go buy more. And every person is like a skeleton. And it's a really fascinating look at like what is philosophy and how do you look at the world? So it's definitely that the hacker versus code school split is one I've been conscious of for a long time, especially as the JavaScript community as we know it today with Node has been so fundamentally altered by like a core cabal of people who were hackers in like the Oakland area like 5, 10 years ago. And it's been so interesting watching these people go forth and make all these things, and now everyone else learning JavaScript, but still using the tools that just this small group created without having to go to code school, just sitting around in some various
3: makerspaces hacking at things. So that's been really fun for me and that's a, you know another example of this sort of thing, you know where these these you know of how tyrannies arise, right? you know it, these kind of happy tyrannies, right? Where a group of people does something really cool, they assumptions and practice, you know, certain logics into what they're doing that then are kind of broadcast and democratized, quote, democratized, you know, made apparently available, but there's something missing. There's something that's not being communicated, you know, in that democratized version of JavaScript in this, in this case of the culture underlying it, all all these um, pieces. And that's, that's what Joe Freeman was getting at, that there's, there is a text and a subtext. And the, the subtext is often what's, driving our communities if we are not clear about, you know, about where power lies.
2: Nathan, can I get you to talk a little bit about like platform cooperativism as a critique of open source? I'm just curious. That in my mind is, I'm just very curious about how you are thinking about this. Yeah. So
3: platform cooperativism is this kind of network project community, like some people say movement, I'm not quite there yet, that I've been involved in for some years now which is about bringing like old fashioned cooperative business models into the online economy, good old, you know, democratic ownership and governance, like your credit union, like, you know, the electric co-op that brought electricity to my grandfather's farm, you know, in the new deal, all this stuff. And so the idea is like, we've got deep accountability problems in the online economy, you know, bad labor practices, bad data practices. Okay. What if the participants, users were workers, were owners, might um, like that address some of these deep challenges. And so I work with startups and so forth that are interested in trying to build cooperative models. And some of them, some of them succeed, some of them don't. So in the course of this, of course, there are a lot of people in that network are really interested in open source and free software and you know there's a lot of elective affinities open source and free software are cooperative you know in the in a looser sense very much and you know, it's all about people cooperating together but there's an interesting difference that gets highlighted there you know and and it often comes up for instance in an exchange i had with richard stallman where he was like i don't care if you know like the drivers own the company and they get paid more if they're running client side apps that they don't control and the code isn't all open, and so forth, right? So there's a disconnect. You know, what do you prioritize? Do you prioritize, you know, the economic flows or the information flows? Open source is generally prioritized the information flows. And also, one thing that open source is really neglected is the collective management of non-code resources. So stuff like money, you know. And this is where Open Collective, you know, works is what resources does the GitHub repo not, at least until recently, support the management of, you know, what are we neglecting? And the argument is too much our commons have been poached by extractive companies. A classic example is, you know, Linux into Android, you know, where you have this open source code base that's the basis of the most powerful corporate surveillance tool ever invented. And so is that really what we want? You know, and, and I'm just just this week, you know, I've been in uh, conversation with developers of an open source platform that is also a kind of cooperative network around the world. And, you know, Microsoft is stepping in and forking their code and, and, you know, making money off of it. And they're like, wait, what's going on? This is like not in line with our values, but it is in line with their licenses, <laughs> right? So there's a sense in which the license is has enabled a kind of a kind of exploitation, a kind of tyranny of structurelessness that cooperative networks are designed to avoid. They're, they're designed to make the, you know, the, the the cooperative idea is to is to put assets, resources under the control of the participants and to make sure they're accountable to those participants. And meanwhile, the open source world kind of has some features that allow and, and actually nourish this kind of extractive process. So, so the critique here is, is, you know, we need to talk about ownership. We need to talk about resources, you know. And, and often I found myself as, you know, like open source geeky as I am, you know, defending cooperative projects that decide not to use open code because actually the open licenses are contravene the goals of the, you know, of the cooperative and the best interests of its users. So it's, you know, again, it, it, it enters into that critique and, and some of the big debates happening around open source right now and, and licensing issues is, you know, how do we deal with cases where, where Amazon is, you know, essentially exploiting the labor of the contributing community? How do we create a framework that, you know, that, that creates a commons, not just of, of intellectual property and code, but a commons of, you know, a kind of full stack commons?
1: Yeah, it's sort of like a double-edged sword because, you know, with the open-source licenses as they are defined now, they allow Amazon and Microsoft to do this. And we shouldn't, you know, as as much as it's like, it's like, come on, guys, seriously. But that doesn't matter. They're technically not doing anything wrong. Uh It's just like a moral issue, I, I suppose. So, yeah, I mean, it's such a... It's such a crazy, like, problem because you know it's it's on one side. It's like, oh, if you're a billion dollar company, then you can't do that, and then the license is like, well, of course you can because there's no discrimination. So it, I don't know. I love you on this show because it gets my mind moving. It's it's very interesting and fascinating. Well, these are
3: questions that. I hope the movement will take seriously, you know, and, and there are questions that are becoming more and more urgent. And a lot of the people at the center of it are kind of batting them off and rather than, engage, and, and they're saying, you know, we've addressed those, we've thought about these, you know, but the, a lot of the things that people are so deeply worried about in tech, you know, actually do go back to open source licenses, you know, and, and, you know, when people are worried about Surveillance and exploitation, you know, it's open source code at the heart of that. You know, what do we do about that? What's the, you know, what's the response? There has to be some response.
1: Well, there's a real world example of that is with Germany, how they went from open source back to proprietary. Now they're going back to open source, I believe. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, I guess it just comes down to, who's in charge, you know, what risk they want to take on. And yeah, it's just.
3: And and, well, another thing, I'm glad you mentioned the the case of Germany, right? Because we have to remember, you know, the, the role that the public can play here. It's, this isn't just a private game, right? And the internet itself, you know, was in a sense, you know, before the term open sourced, you know, in part because it was a public investment and there was this, you know, it could have gone private, right? That was an option. That was a live option. And, you know, there were political forces that, you know, you know, visionary leaders who saw that, okay, that that would be a bad idea. You know, there's this other option. And so that these tools just became, you know, available for for public use. You know, another example of this is France right now, investing in projects like Nextcloud and Matrix, really, I think, great projects that I use daily. And there's something different when a government is investing in a in a project than when you know a private company is. Often private companies are investing in tools that they can use in on the back end, right? But not so much often front end interfaces, things that will make the tool a competitor, right? They they're very selective about the kinds of investments they want to make in open in open tools. Whereas governments have a different set of incentives when they invest in open tools. They want to create something that's kind of useful for the public. And I think that's a reminder that we should think, you know, one of the solutions to some of these dilemmas is to you know, call for increasing public investment in these tools because it will look different from the private investment.
2: Nathan, can you tell us a little bit about community rule and what are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, so so this is a project. This goes back to what we, t- we were talking about earlier around around governance, which is, and this is a result of my impatience. You know, I talked earlier about this super ambitious project involved into like create computational governance, you know, systems through this meta governance framework, right? But I can't wait for that. So together with my lab, I've been spinning up this little tool called Community Rule. It's at communityrule.info. And it's a kind of a generator tool for mini constitutions for groups. And, you know, we're thinking about, longing for, hoping to serve groups as varied as like the mutual aid networks that are forming around coronavirus, right? That often form without kind of explicit governance agreements, just out of community and passion, but actually now have to work on the long haul and, and are gonna have to make some hard decisions. And also open source projects, where you know we've got the README uh, file, we've got the contributing file that kind of tells you how to pitch in. We've got the license file that tells the world what it can can can't do with this stuff. But what about the governance file, right? That says you know who makes the decisions, who ultimately accepts the the contributions, you know who does this or that, whatever the important decisions are. And so community rules set up to allow people to publish their little mini rules to the site and share with each other, and already we're seeing people learning from each other. For instance, a group started a temporary benevolent dictator rule where they modified the benevolent dictator, made it explicitly temporary, and then others started borrowing from that language. And it also allows you to export a GitHub-ready MD file, so that you can insert your governance.md file into your, into your repo. So this is an attempt to start with natural language to experiment with the stuff that hopefully someday our tools will be much better equipped for, to make it so that simple common sense you know, governance logic is kind of the norm in our communities.
2: That's fascinating. And um, I'd love to experiment it <laughs> with, you know, the collectives and also the relief funds. But also, I'm so curious and genuinely kind of interested in seeing, you know, what sort of experiments the other folks are running and what kind of governance, you know, I guess, yeah, just what blueprints can we, you know, put together and, and share knowledge of our governance structure? I love it. It's like sandboxes of innovation for building Institutions. That's Absolutely.
3: I, I'm already learning from what people are putting into it and and I'm just hoping to, you know, to see more of that learning from each other happening.
2: Great. Great. Thank you for that.
3: So Nathan, that's about the time we have today. And thank you so
0: much. Before we move on to Spotlight, I want to know where can people find you? Where can they find your work? Where can they read your books? Where can they get involved? Where can they upload these templates? Et cetera, et cetera.
3: Yeah. So, so stuff about my work, including like drafts of papers that, you know, several of which I've mentioned here is at nathanschneider.info and lots of stuff there, as well as information about my books, like stuff about co-ops. I have a book about Occupy Wall Street, a book about proofs for the existence of God, if you're into that sort of thing. So there's, there's (laughs) something for everybody. And then also the community rule project is communityrule.info. As you can see, I really love .info, top-level domains. I don't understand why people don't use them more. Like, we're all just sharing information. It's a great domain. They're cheap, you know. I love that. I just wish a sponsorship that they, from whoever runs these. I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that. I just wish that the co-op one had a diuresis in it so you, it wouldn't be pronounced as coop, but it yeah, could have the two dots that. over the second no, O. It, the,
3: the co-op one is really interesting. It was one of the first top-level domains really early on. Uh, a rare example of co-ops being on the cutting edge and they manage it pretty tightly. So you have to, you can't, not just anybody can grab one of those domains. You have to like legitimately be part of the movement, which is pretty good. Love that. Love that. Speaking of the movement,
0: part of any movement is looking back and shedding light on people who came before us and cool projects that have been part of our story. So this is the time for spotlight where we all point out things in the Boston accent that we really love. Justin, what do you got for us?
1: You know, there's been so much talk about governance in this conversation that we had today. So I want to bring up the Governance Ready Working Group that you can find on sustainoss.org. And uh, yeah, check it out.
0: Also full of people who love governance. You are not alone, Nathan. Not alone.
1: Gunnar. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about open hardware this past year and the fact that if we don't pay more attention to open hardware, our open source efforts are for, for not. And I've been hanging out with a gathering on open science hardware and just can't shout them out enough. I think they're doing really cool work. Awesome. Thank you. Pia?
2: Yeah, so my spotlight today is saveinternetfreedom.tech. It's a coalition that is trying to save ODF, the Open Technology Fund, from being dismantled by the government and uh, turning the broadcasters into mouthpieces of the current administration. So please. Join the campaign. Whenever this is released, the campaign is going to still be going. So sign the newsletter or sign the petition. Call your representatives and check it out.
1: Wait, why didn't you get a dot info? I have no idea. Dot tech is not where it's at.
2: Yeah. All
1: right. Sorry. I'm joking.
0: Good questions. Eric had to drop off, but I can see from the notes that his spotlight was going to be all in one dot which is an all in one messenger. I think harking back to trillion level days when we used to have AIM and ICQ and IRC all in the same boat. Sounds super cool. I miss those tools. So go try out that. My spotlight is for Matthias Boos, who was one of the early hackers I mentioned earlier in Oakland. He just launched a GitHub Sponsors. He's done a lot of really cool stuff with streams and with torrents and with the P2P web. He's been one of the people who's really inspired me to actually just code more and code often. Highly suggest... Checking out his sponsors and or his work, which you probably used at some point if you've done anything on the P2P web, which is super, super cool. Nathan, last but not least, what do you got for us?
3: I, I think I'm going to speak for the the ethical source movement, which is, you know, a kind of part of this critique of open source, uh, a friendly critique. A group of people want to bring ethics into open source. And one thing that, that they've just adopted, you know, at, which I was involved in a bit was an expectation that groups do practice governance in order to be a kind of ethical project. And it's just a really productive community in terms of a conversation around some of these issues. So if people are interested in getting involved more, uh, do that. I also just have to offer a plug for a local company doing great open source hardware and software, which is System76. They're making computers not this one, but the the desktops here in Colorado doing, you know, domestic manufacturing, building a great distro of Linux, Op OS, and they're, they're, they're great people. So please, you know, consider what they're doing. And, and the new Lemur Bro laptop is phenomenal.
0: Awesome. Thank you. I've also just invited you, Nathan, to the WG-Podcast group channel in the Ethical Source Slack, which you can all join because we're thinking about starting up an ethical podcast series. Oh, awesome. Either with them or with Sustain, not sure yet. The conversation is open. <laughs> Everyone should get involved with Ethical Source. It's super cool. Thank you so much, Nathan. And thank you for coming and talking about all these awesome things. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's great to be on. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia. With enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com sustain.